Good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing? Doing well? Uh, I've, uh, we forgot to mention, if you would like to uh, support the church and give offerings and tithes to the church, there are um, boxes in the back at the exits, and you can also give online as well. Since giving is an act of worship, we ought not to forget that. But... Uh, my name is Frank uh, Wong. I'm one of the pastors here at Potomac Hills. Uh, if you're new here, we're glad that you're here with us. Uh, please do stick around after the service. Uh, we'd love to get the chance to know you a little bit more. Uh, and if you are new, some context. We are working our way through the book of Philippians right now. And so uh, if all of y'all want to turn over in Philippians to chapter 2, We'll be focusing our attention on verses 6 to 11, but I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. And since this Sunday is our uh, Sunday of the month where our children stay stay in the service with us instead of uh, heading to children's church, I'll be doing my best to stick to big points and not get too far into the details. Uh, And so kids, uh, if you normally go to children's church, please raise your hands. I want to see my kids. Who, who, Who normally goes to children's church? Okay, a few. Okay, great. Uh, We have class rules, as many of you know, for our children's church, and that makes sense, right? We talk about Jesus at children's church the same way that we talk about Jesus here in in the service. And so let's all remember our class rules for children's church. Uh, First is calm body. uh, Wives and husbands don't be sort of elbowing each other. Uh, Calm body first, and then we want to be ready to listen which means we're not chatting with each other, and uh, then we're ready to learn, which means that we're paying attention. And then lastly, be ready to love so that we can uh, help each other love uh, the Lord and hear about him. And that really fits well with our passage this morning because we're going to see how the gospel helps us to love others because we tend to want to love ourselves instead. And so again, our passage is Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, but I'll be starting reading in verse 1, uh, but so follow along in your Bibles, and then when we get to verse uh, 6, you can uh, follow along there. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition and or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is, in, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father God, as we come uh, to your word this morning, we are mindful that we uh, do exactly the opposite of this, that we do not consider others more significant than ourselves, but that we consider ourselves to be number one. 
that we have our priorities wrong. And Lord, as we look at your son, the Lord Jesus, in these last, uh, the last verses of this section, we ask that you would not only show us an example of what true humility is, but that you would enable us to see that you are the way to humility. And so, Lord, uh, give us uh, a picture of uh, your gospel and of your grace. And most of all, we ask that you would show us yourself. So be with us now this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So how many of you had dreams of glory, fame, and fortune when you were younger? Hands. Fame, fortune, oh, come on. A little bit more. Okay, fine. So uh, I know I had dreams of uh, fame and fortune and glory. There were the dreams of being a world-class athlete, like an Olympian or a superstar uh, NBA player. Like There was a whole generation of, of kids that wanted to be like Mike, right? And those dreams of mine crashed and burned pretty quickly uh, because I'm not an athlete not the greatest athlete in all the world. And even now with my torn Achilles that I tore a couple of months ago, those dreams are definitely gone, right? And then after those dreams of being an athlete uh, had come and gone, I had dreams of being a world-class doctor. And those dreams sort of went away as well once I hit college in organic chemistry and I didn't do so well, right? And then there were dreams of being the next Tim Keller as a pastor or having a best-selling book that sort of changed the theological well, hopefully not change the theological landscape, but sort of, sort of helped uh, like, sort of people with their sort of theological issues and sort of points people to Christ. And uh, thankfully, those dreams of pastoral grandeur uh, were fleeting since, especially writing anything, sermons, books, anything takes me forever. And so thankfully, those went away pretty quickly as well. But at the core of all of it was a desire for fame, fortune, and glory. And while having a lot of money and stuff would be nice, I know that deep down, really, those dreams and fantasies of grandeur were really based on a desire for glory, right? I wanted people to see me and to think that I was uh, important, special, and most of all, worthy. And sure, as I got older, the dreams of grandeur mostly went away, but I still have a desire for glory. And maybe it's the approval of my parents or that someone in my community group recognizes a particularly good point that I made in my last sermon, or it's uh, maybe a n the number of likes on a post or a comment that says, I totally agree, finally somebody that makes sense, right? Maybe it's that little smile of approval from your best friend. It's the same desire for glory, just not as grand. And yet we seek out those little glories. We sometimes live for them, and we get grumpy sometimes when they don't happen. And why is that? Well, we have to go back to last week's passage, to the Greek word in verse 3 of this chapter that is translated selfish ambition or conceit, which, which is kenodoxian, which uh, Dr. Dave told us so much about last week. And it literally, when literally translated, it means glory empty. It points to this sort of bedrock truth about sinful humanity that we want glory for ourselves. We are hungry for glory because we are glory empty. And so let me say that again because we're going to come back to it later. We are hungry for glory because we are glory empty. We want ourselves to be number one. We want glory and it goes all the way back to the garden, to that original sin. 
back there, and we wanted to become like God. We coveted his glory for ourselves. And we no longer were content to be creatures, but we wanted to be on the same level as our creator. And so as Roman one, uh, Romans 1 tells us, we exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The lie that we humans could be God, that we could have that glory that is his and his alone. And so we have a problem right off the bat. We do exactly what Paul and God don't want us to do. We are selfish and self-oriented. We think about ourselves all the time. And I literally mean that. Like all the time I think about myself. What I want, what I need, what I hope for, what I want to accomplish, my goals, my hopes, my dreams, me, 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 me. It's always my this, my that. And Paul knows that we don't measure up to, the, to what he's calling us to. And his answer is the passage that we get this morning, this soaring hymn about Jesus in verses 6 to 11. And it, it feels a little weird, right? Because we, it feels like we're getting just sort of a simple role model. Be like Jesus. Look at what Jesus was like. Be like him. But I think it's far more than that. Sure, we get Christ as an example of what true humility is, but Christ is also the one who enables us to have a humility like his. And so let, let's look at Christ as both the example of humility and the enabler toward humility. And so let's start with Christ as the example for, of humility. And right here in verse 6 at the start of our passage, we get a sense of Jesus' view of himself. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Jesus is God. He's divine through and through. And yet, he didn't hold on to his divine glory as if it were something to be hoarded. Now, there's a missionary by the name of Paul London who uh, has a fantastic illustration on this. And when he was serving in Africa, they were in this really sort of super dry area. And when they would dig a well, it wasn't the kind of well where you would have this sort of big hole in the ground and then you would lower a bucket down into this pool of water at the bottom and then haul the water back up. No, in that area, you would, you would build a well really deep and really narrow. And there would be notches built into the side of the wall that you would climb down with a bucket and what you would do is you would, uh, you would actually sop up moisture that would condense on the walls and floor of the well and then you would wring out the rag or the sponge into a bucket and then you would take it back up and that would be your water now one day a man slipped on his way down to the bottom right and so as he's climbing down he slips and he breaks his leg from the fall and he was a fairly large man and so no one was really strong enough to like climb down there put him on his back and haul him back up to the top of the well. And so everybody was like, what are we going to do? Until the chief showed up. And he was the biggest, strongest man of the tribe. And he took off his, he would take off his ceremonial robe and his ceremonial headdress and he would set them aside. And then he went down into the well, picked up this man and climbed back out. And that's such a great picture of what Jesus does for us in this passage he never stops being god he never stops sort of being divine but he he doesn't stand on his glory as god he didn't saying he didn't say that saving us was beneath him that he didn't think he was too important too famous too glorious to get down into the muck 
and haul a broken person back up. And so he didn't hold on to his divine glory, but rather set it aside that he might come down to get us in the same way that that chief took off his headdress and took off his ceremonial robe in order to get down into the well to save this man. And let's think about how crazy that is that God would do this. The illustration is good, but the chief is just a man. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, became a servant. The chief has earthly glory and authority, but God is the source of glory and authority. And so God is on another level. The idea that God would become a servant is just mind-blowing. And so we think about that time when Jesus takes off his robe and wraps a a towel around himself and volunteers to take on a task so vile, so low, that only the worst, the lowest of servants would be expected to do it. You guys remember the, the pecking order that Dave talked about last week of chickens sort of eating at like the, the grass, uh, the grains on the ground? Only the lowest of the low would wash feet. And here the God of the universe, the perfect one, the son of, the son of man, the Lord of lords, the king of kings is taking off his robe, wrapping a towel around himself and doing dirty work that we don't even deign to do ourselves. And all because he's not really concerned about himself, but he's concerned about us, which in itself is crazy, that he would consider us, which reminds me of Psalm Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in places, what is man? that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him. Or as the message translation puts it, why do you bother with us? Why take a second look our way? And it, it doesn't make sense for God to even bother with us. He's the only one that could be rightfully self-absorbed to require us to come to him. And yet he doesn't do it. And he isn't sort of self-absorbed. And then, when we get to verse 8 in our passage, which is really the ultimate example of humility, Jesus, who was sinless, perfect, and worthy of all praise, honor, and glory, Jesus willingly allowed wicked and sinful men like you and me to nail him to a cross and kill him. He could have come down at any point. He could have called angels down to slay all of his enemies. He could have, uh, he was going through an unimaginable amount of pain and suffering as the guilt and wrath of uh, the sins of his people, past, present, and future, were laid upon him. And he was forsaken by his father too. And in the midst of that, right, he has a choice to make. He can either follow his father's will and stay on that cross, or he he can do what every fiber of his earthly body is telling him to do, which is come down. He has a choice between what he wants in his earthly self and what God wants. And in his true humility, in the midst of unimaginable personal suffering, Jesus' thoughts were not for himself, but for those that that had put him there. He wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about the will of his Father, and also of us. 
Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Every agonizing moment brought with it a choice. No one would have been able to fault him for choosing himself either. He was the God of the universe, perfect in every way. He didn't deserve to be there. He could have come down at any point. And if he had, all that would have happened would have been that we simply wouldn't have received mercy and grace, which we didn't deserve anyways. We would have gotten the justice and wrath we so richly deserve. And so he could have come down, but he didn't. Because he wanted to stay on the cross. He chose to stay on the cross. He wasn't doing this for himself, but for you and for me. And so in a lot of ways, our salvation depends on Christ's humility. That he didn't think about himself, but about others who were at the time his fierce and bitter enemies. And so he doesn't consider others he doesn't consider himself to be more significant than others, which is crazy, right? Because he's God. He considers others more significant than himself. And so how can he do this? Other than the simple fact that he's God, right? How can he do this? You know, Paul is holding Jesus up as an example. And in answer to all those questions of, that we have about how, how can we be humble like Jesus is humble? And I think... It has to do with his security in the Father. You see, when Jesus hung on the cross and looked out upon his circumstances on the cross in sort of unimaginable pain and forsaken by family and friends and the Father, he still did not waver in his confidence or his obedience. He completed the will of his Father, and he also trusted him in, him in everything. Completely alone, what does he do? He gives his body soul, and very self into the hands of God. Luke 23, 46 tells us, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But as he's experiencing, he surveys his life and he can see no evidence that God is for him. He's alone and on a cross. And yet he gives his, his very self to the Lord God. Even in the midst of being forsaken and having wrath poured out upon him, Jesus was secure in his Father. He was confident that he, that is Jesus, would be vindicated. He was sure that he would emerge victorious over sin, death, and the curse. He was sure that he would experience resurrection life. So sure, in fact, that he was, he, was he of his Father's love for him, that at his very core was a desire not for his own will to be done, but his Father's. And in that security in and desire for the Lord and not for himself, Jesus does what Adam does not. In his desire for the Lord, Jesus does what Adam could not and would not do. Jesus fulfills the covenant by being perfectly obedient all things, even death on a cross. And it is because of his fulfillment of the covenant that Jesus receives the exaltation that we see in verses 9 to 11. That he has chosen not himself, not to exalt himself, not to chase his own glory, to not sort of hold on to uh, glory, but to chase after God. That is the original sin that Adam did, right? Choosing himself over God. 
Jesus did not do it. And so therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So now Jesus is highly exalted because of his humility and security in God. So what? How does that change me? That's what Jesus did over there. He's got all the glory. So how does that apply to me? Well, we have to go back to verse 5 and to the end of the gospel. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That surpassing glory, that sure confidence, that foundational security, which we just talked about, is yours in Christ Jesus. And it's all because we have Christ through our union with him. So do you begin to see how this works? Do you begin to see how the gospel changes everything? It's not just that Jesus did this thing 2,000 years ago, but that he's united to me right now. And everything, even humility, flows out of that union with Christ. So our union changes three things. Our union changes our hearts. It changes our needs and security, and it changes our hunger. So our union changes hearts. Remember back when I said that I'm selfish and self-oriented, that I think about myself all the time? Well, my heart isn't mine anymore. That's the answer to the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What is his is mine, and what is mine is his. And so my heart is no longer my own, stuck in sin and set in its ways like stone. Now I belong to Christ completely, and as Ezekiel tells us, I have a new heart, and I will give them one, uh, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them, and I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That new heart, that new spirit, that is Jesus's heart and spirit, that's mine now. That humble heart is now ours in Christ Jesus. That heart that comes from uh, our union with Christ. When we come into his presence, when we are united with him, we are wholly changed because now we have his heart, his humility. We don't have to think about ourselves all the time anymore. We're freed from ourselves to be humble, to serve to be about others. And so I'm not asking us to change. I'm asking us to rather to live according to who we already are in Christ Jesus. You already are humble in Christ Jesus. We just need to live like it. And so secondly, our union changes needs and securities. So if we have Christ, if we are united to him and what is his is mine and what is mine is his, what else? can we need? If Jesus is for us, who can be against us? God has set his love upon us, and so he has given the life of his own son for us. Do you think that he would just let his beloved go, whom he has paid his son for? Do you think that anything could separate us from God? Even before the foundations of the world, the Lord has chosen us. And so of this, we can be sure and secure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor demons, nor rulers, nor anything present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans 8. Friends, 
if you were invulnerable and immortal, life would look radically different. You wouldn't have to worry about getting hurt. You wouldn't have to worry about dying. You wouldn't have to worry about where your next meal would come from. Why? Because you're immortal. You, you can't die. You'd be free to walk into a burning building to save people. You'd be free from fear for yourself. You wouldn't have to think about your, yourself so much because you're already covered. Nothing can touch you. And that's ultimately what we have in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we have already gone to the cross with him, and yet we are already and truly raised in newness of life with him. This is how Paul was able to say to live as Christ and to die as gain. Now that we have Christ, we're covered. Not to take foolish risks, but to love and care more boldly and sacrificially than we have before. Why? Because we're already covered. We have Christ's riches. At, uh, we have God's riches at Christ's expense. Right? We have God's riches at Christ's expense which means that we're already covered. And so lastly, I think we can wrap up by thinking about how our union with Christ changes our very hungers, our very desires. Remember back when I said that we are hungry for glory because we are glory empty? That's how we started this morning. We are hungry for glory because we are glory empty. That word, kenodoxian, selfish ambition or conceit, really embodies our, self, our sinfulness, our selfishness. And it's because we want glory that is not ourselves to, that is not ours to be ours without God. But then think about verse nine and, verses 9 and 11, those sort of, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, that glory that the Christ has. Think about the glory that Every knee shall bow at his name and every tongue confess that he is Lord. When Paul says that he has highly exalted the Lord Jesus, he literally says that God has super exalted him, that he has given him a glory that surpasses understanding. He has been super glorified. That glory is Jesus's. Well, now, in our union with him, that glory is ours. Which means that we are no longer glory empty, but that we are glory full. We have Jesus' glory in our union with him. And so we don't, hunger, we don't have to hunger for glory anymore because we have a glory already filling us in Christ Jesus that surpasses our wildest imaginations. And so for Paul, the solution to our problems of selfish ambition and conceit isn't to try harder to be better. The solution is to behold the glory of our Savior because we have the same glory in Christ Jesus. When you're hungry, the solution isn't to try to be less hungry. The solution is to eat. Right? We're, it's almost lunchtime. All of you are hungry. We're all hungry here. The solution isn't to be like, mm, I'm not hungry. I'm not hungry. You're just going to get hungrier and hungrier. And at some point, you're going to chase after that hunger. No, the solution is to eat, to taste and see that the Lord is good. 
to feast and be satisfied. And we do that through our union with him. And so let's chase after Jesus. When we come to the communion table as we did last week, when we come to the Lord whenever we pray, when we read his word, when we spend time with other believers, we get to taste and see that the Lord is good. So let us be filled, not with a hunger for glory, but rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory that we are united in Christ. Friends, we have a feast laid out before us in Christ. He is amazing, and he will satisfy every single one of our desires, especially our desire for glory. And because we already have been filled by his Holy Spirit, we get to be humble. We get to think about others as more significant than ourselves. Why? Because we already have a glory that surpasses understanding. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you do not leave us empty and hungry, but that you give us your very self, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we gaze upon your gospel, as we gaze upon this amazing truth that you came down to be one of us, that you might save us, that you might become our righteousness, and that we might become your glory. Lord, I pray that that truth would sink deep down into our bones, that we have your glory already, that we would not hunger anymore for ourselves but that we would see just how much you have filled us. Lord, make us rejoice over that truth that we are now in you. Remind us of that each moment, each day, that we might rejoice um, over what we have in you. So uh, be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name.